Hello, and welcome to Boston Private Perspectives. I'm Shannon Sakosha, Chief Investment Officer at Boston Private. The summer is waning, our college students are returning back to school with mixed results, and many of us are moving into yet another month of work from home. A vaccine for COVID-19 is on the horizon, but questions about timing and efficacy of such a vaccine remain. The Democrats have hosted their convention, and the Republicans are up this week, so we should all ready ourselves for the ensuing onslaught of campaign ads, many of which, based on the convention rhetoric, are likely to be negative. Economic data has been strong, even stellar in pockets like housing, but there are some cracks beginning to form following the expiration of expanded unemployment benefits. And yet the narrative last week in the equity markets was centered around the S&P 500 index hitting another all-time high. An all-time high, merely months after the deepest GDP contraction in history, just months after over 30 million Americans lost their jobs, and just months amidst continued announcements of retail bankruptcies and additional large-scale layoffs for companies deemed to be pandemic-challenged, and even those who haven't typically been included in that group. Small businesses continue to close around the country, the unemployment rate remains over 10%, and wages have stagnated based on the excess capacity that we now have in our system. We talked earlier on in the summer about this disconnect between Main Street and Wall Street. And while I will touch on it here, I think it's important to understand why we have seen such a sharp rebound in stocks and provide some thoughts on the path of this particular rally. First, there's the argument that we have seen an improvement in expectations for the economy, which will translate into an earnings growth recovery. And that has driven stock prices and multiples higher over the last four months. Taking that at face value, it seems entirely plausible. At the depths of the March decline, there were fears of a multi-quarter earnings recession, which would drag through the end of the year. Lockdowns were widespread, supply disruptions were creating an overhang for businesses that could remain open, as they were deemed essential, and companies were scrambling to determine what the long-term effects on their business would be, and how quickly and deeply they would need to cut costs to mitigate the impact of lower revenue. With the U.S. and other economies opening back up, perhaps not fully, but certainly more than just for milk and egg runs at capacity-limited stores, the pressure on corporate America to change their businesses entirely overnight seemed to ease. With that said, though, what we are seeing now is the second wave or second derivative of these early crisis days. Whether it is an acknowledgement that perhaps a more digitally driven workforce is a smaller workforce or the reality that some industries are not in a V-shaped recovery by any means, we expect that there will be additional cost-cutting and layoffs over the course of the next few months. The job losses thus far have been disproportionately concentrated in low-wage services jobs, but the impact of this reset on the economy globally is likely to be more profound than that. Companies are also aware that they have been given a bit of latitude over the last two quarters from a results perspective, and that that patience is likely to wane as we move through the back half of the year. So steadying themselves to get back to sustainable top and bottom line growth is imperative. 
Another point to make here is that if the equity markets were just trading higher on improving growth, we would expect to see more meaningful improvement in the Treasury yield curve. Yield curve steepening, which implies that the longer-term bonds trade at a higher yield than shorter-term bonds, has been basically non-existent. As growth and inflation expectations rise, we should see the 10-year rise too. And while we have started to see glimpses of accelerating inflation, without wage inflation to contribute to this, it is not likely to move meaningfully higher in the coming months. This is what the bond market is seeing, and it is reflected in the yield curve. In addition, while there has been a sharp move to a riskier posture, there is an underlying current of conservatism that keeps a lid on yields, as investors are still cautious that the progress made in curbing the spread of the pandemic may not be entirely sustainable. So if it isn't improving earnings and economic growth predictions, then what is driving stock prices higher? Saying it is the Fed seems simplistic, but in reality, a lot of what has happened in the last decade, both good and bad, in the equity markets can be traced back to the Fed. A supplier of liquidity, a buyer of last resort, and perhaps the enabler of unnecessarily risky behavior in the form of a growing corporate debt load. These are all roles that the Fed has played in the capital markets since the financial crisis of 2008 to 2009. One of the harshest criticisms of the Fed over the last decade, and one that was finally starting to subside during 2019, was that the Fed was significantly disadvantaging savers and others who rely on income from cash and bonds. As the Fed seemed poised to methodically raise rates over the next several years, cash was finally earning a yield in 2019, and while Treasuries were still trading at historically low levels, there was a view that interest rate normalization was on the horizon. With the economy trending higher and corporations able to cover the additional interest burden of a slow rise in interest rates, there was optimism that more conservative proportions of portfolios could once again provide some yield. Of course, that was before March of this year, and now the Fed has once again cut rates to zero and has been actively intervening in the bond markets to ensure that the dislocation we experienced in March does not happen again. But in doing so, they have encouraged riskier behavior for investors. Not because these investors necessarily feel all bowled up by the prospects for an index in which the performance has been driven this year by just a handful of stocks, but because the alternatives to equities are really subpar in terms of return expectations. The story that I'm discussing is not a get-rich-quick story by any means. It is not about day traders buying bankrupt companies and churning shares of Tesla on Robinhood. The risky behavior that I'm referring to is when investors are forced to take on higher equity exposure to drive income through dividends and capital appreciation. This is compounded by the recent underperformance in dividend-paying stocks, which have historically provided investors with a lower volatility option for equity exposure. Instead, the winners have been growth stocks trading at multiples well above the index, and investors are essentially looking for these trends to continue by buying in at this point. That brings us back to where we started. What is going to happen next? Will the equity markets continue to march higher, trading on all that could go right, 
Or have we pulled some of those gains from a normalizing economy and a vaccine forward? Our view is that a robust, sustainable economic recovery is necessary for stocks to continue to appreciate through 2021. The concentration at the top of the index is not just in the weights of these names as part of the overall index, but is reflective of the performance of the index as well, with most of the names in the S&P 500 index still well below their pre-pandemic highs. A broadening out of this performance should occur if an economic recovery is sustained, because the more cyclical stocks will begin to perform better. We believe there is a threat of a pullback in the equity markets should evidence of a plateau or even a shallow double dip in the economy occur. But this pullback could also come on the back of other things, such as a blue wave in the U.S. election or a market deterioration in U.S.-China relations. Stocks right now are priced anticipating a lot of good news in the next few months, and it is tough for markets to sustain this type of momentum without interruption. Thanks again for listening to this week's podcast. I want to encourage all of you to reach out to our team here at Boston Private with any questions or concerns you may have. Providing guidance and support as a trusted advisor is our mission. If you have any questions or thoughts on my points today, you can find me on Twitter at Shannon Sakosha. You can also read our latest perspectives on the markets, the economy, taxes, estate planning, and the election by visiting bostonprivate.com. And if you want all of this information delivered right to your inbox, I encourage you to sign up for our newsletters while you're there. Be sure to subscribe to the Boston Private Perspectives on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen. And I look forward to coming to you next week. This podcast is solely for informational purposes and is not a solicitation or an offer to buy any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy. The opinions expressed and information contained in this podcast are given in good faith, may be subject to change without notice, and are as of the date issued. All sourced information is believed to be reliable but has not been independently verified. This podcast discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic, market, or political conditions and should not be construed as personalized investment advice. The following does not represent a complete analysis of every material fact with respect to the topics covered herein. All investments carry a risk of loss. Neither BPW nor its investment professionals or representatives provide tax, accounting, or legal advice. Listeners should review any planned financial transactions or arrangements that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with their advisors. For additional information about us, please refer to our Form ADV Disclosure Brochure, which may be obtained by contacting us at 800-422-6172 or info at bostonprivate.com. Private banking and trust services are offered through Boston Private Bank and Trust Company, a Massachusetts chartered trust company. Wealth management services are offered through Boston Private Wealth, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor and wholly-owned subsidiary of Boston Private Bank and Trust Company. Boston Private Bank is an FDIC member and equal housing lender. Investments are not FDIC-insured, not bank-guaranteed, and may lose value.